All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Deuteronomy. And the sixth chapter this morning as a starting point. We are going to do some scripture hopping. Um, a little more topical than I generally will engage in, but with a baby dedication later this morning and Father's Day, it, it seemed appropriate to divert from my norm and do a more topical sermon. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 4 if you join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word, please. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. Give us clarity, give us understanding, give us wisdom. God, give us purpose and passion for that purpose. And let us speak the name of Christ with power and with authority, with truth, with clarity. I pray, Father, that you would turn every man in this place into a mighty warrior for the King, that you would grant to us wisdom and power and strength, that we would lift high the name of Christ, and that you would help us be faithful all the days that you grant to us life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I want to start with a little background. Because in a perfect world, you don't have fathers without marriages. See, God created the parable of marriage for the display of his love for his chosen people. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 30, says, We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, part of that covenant that God created, that declaration that God has made, was that marriage was to become a family, to produce not only offspring, but specifically godly offspring. Malachi 2.15 says, Has he not made them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. The intent of our homes, then, as we live out the parable of marriage and the parable of family, is to make sure that the lesson is learned, that our families faithfully reflect the God who chose us before the foundation of the world, that our families faithfully reflect the God who sent his own son to die for the sins of that chosen people, and who in the fullness of his own perfect plan and in his own perfect timetable, will one day return again to redeem us all unto himself. It's a lot to take in, and it's a much higher calling than most homes are aiming at. The reason for this lapse is that too many fathers are aiming at completely the wrong things. We see in even the best families that many of them are aimed at worldly success. We see them aim at financial security, at a good name among the neighbors, 
at comfort, some measure of enjoyment of hobbies, and a desire to set the children up better than the parents had it. And none of these things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but when they are permitted to replace that which is the main thing, they become a stumbling block. This morning, I want to consider with you just what is required of parents in general and fathers in particular, so that when our families are concerned, we might hear God speak the words, well done. So I want to return with you to this question of what is our purpose. And we just read Deuteronomy 6. And in this, we have our main calling. This is kind of the formative passage for all of Israel. When, when God called them out and made them a people, Deuteronomy 6.4 is called the Shema. And in Hebrew, Shema means here. It's taken from that first word. And it's the idea that we are to listen to what God has said and allow God's message and God's truth and God's purpose and God's plan be that which forms our thinking. We're not permitted to take our cues from the world. We're not permitted to think that the world knows who God is. They don't. They talk about God a lot. They speak about him with with great swelling words of emptiness. And you can go into many places that would call themselves churches today and hear all sorts of things about God that are not based in any way upon the scripture. That cannot be us. If we're going to be faithful to who God is, we have to express who God himself says he is. Think about it like this. If I go to somebody and I want to tell them about you, well, let's make this a little easier. I'll just pick on a name. I'm going to, I'm going to go to somebody and I'm going to tell them about Peggy. And so I go to them and I tell them how Peggy just hates dogs and how Peggy would never in her whole life have anything to do with any animal because she's an animal hater. Now, everybody that knows Peggy knows I just told a terrible lie because Peggy's the most dog and animal person on the planet, I think. But you see, the way the world sees it is, that's my perception of Peggy. That's my truth. That's how I understand her. And therefore, that's who she is to me. And the world says they have the right to define God with terminology just like that. It doesn't matter that God has revealed himself to us. It doesn't matter that God in his word has taken the time to tell us exactly who he is. The world says they have the right to define him according to their preference and according to their own opinions and their own agendas. And we see God being reframed constantly in the world through this evil practice. Well, if we're going to be faithful to God, we have to declare the true nature of God. So the Shema starts off and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. There is only one God, and He defines who He is. And it is our job as men of God to faithfully proclaim who God says He is. It's our job as men of God to faithfully proclaim who God says we are. You see, God is not ambiguous about our sin. He's not ambiguous about the fact that we live our lives in rebellion to his ways based upon our own preferences and desires. And you don't have to be very awake to understand that the culture right now is absolutely aflame with an entire generation that's doing its best to redefine what God says is permitted and what God says is not. You could point at any one of a hundred hot-button issues and understand that every single one of them is an attempt to reframe what God has said because I want what I want and nobody has the right to tell me I can't have it. 
Well, beloved, if we're going to be faithful, we don't need to be faithful to our desires. We need to be faithful to God's commands. We need to be faithful to what God says and to let his word speak for what it is. So we need to declare his true nature according to God's word. And we also need to declare our true nature according to God's word. And the scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That every single one of us is condemned. According to Ephesians chapter 1, we are born dead. There's nothing in us which can communicate to God, nothing in us which can perceive God, nothing in us which desires him in any way. Romans chapter 3 says, all have gone astray. And the scripture goes on to tell us that that willing disobedience to God carries with it a consequence. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, if we're going to be faithful to God, we're we're not allowed to, to, to hide that. We're not allowed to sweep that under the rug. I'm not allowed to go to somebody and say, oh, it doesn't matter what you do with your life. God's just perfectly delighted and over the moon with you. I can't tell you that. And, and it might make you angry if I don't tell you that. In fact, for most people, it makes them incredibly angry that I won't tell them that. But if I love you, if I have any real concern for you, I had better speak the truth When life and death and eternity are on the line. I better speak the truth all the time, but especially then. If I walk into a room and I see you pouring yourself a big old glass of bleach, and you think to yourself, this is a good drink, and I don't stop you, do I love you or do I hate you? (laughs) It's a pretty awful way to die. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) It's, it's a pretty awful way to die. And I can tell you I love you all day long and I want you to have what you want and therefore I love you. But truth matters. And truth says, if I don't stop you from doing that, you're going to hurt yourself at best. You see, we have to be honest. We have to be honest with ourselves and we have to be honest with others and we have to base that honesty not on our preferences because my preferences don't matter. You want to talk about preferences? Turn the radio to a station you want to listen to. I don't care. That's a preference. Paint your house the color you want. If you want to live in a Smurf blue house, do it. If you don't, repaint it. I don't care. That's a preference. But where God has said, you shall and you shall not, my preference leaves. I don't get to define those things, not and be faithful to him. I have to be faithful to his word. I have to be faithful to what he says. And I have to be willing to do that because if I'm going to be a faithful man to God, I have to love him above all else. And that includes you. I love you, but I love God more. I love my wife, but I love God more. I love my children But I love God more. And the fact that I love God more frees me to love them well. Because I don't have to live my life hoping that they're going to like me and therefore compromise the truth because I'm worried that if I don't do this just right, they're not going to like me anymore. They may not like me. I love them enough to let that be. But I have to speak the truth about what God says. 
because I love him more. And that's my job as a father. My job is to raise up my children so that they might know this God who is worth loving above all else. Because loving God is the most wondrous and amazing thing that you can possibly ever know. He's worth it. He's worth the loss of all things, Paul says. And in the end, our job is to teach our children to love and honor God above everything else. And guys, hear me. Please listen. This is the stuff of life. And it matters more than anything else. My dad taught me to hunt. He taught me to fish. He taught me to camp. He taught me to do all kinds of things that I love to do. But the thing that he taught me that I'm most grateful for is he taught me to love God. He brought me up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. He brought me up knowing who God was. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Nothing else that he ever gave me matters as much as that. And it never can. That's our job. That is the primary definition of what it is to be a father. So, if we're going to do this, and we're going to do this well, we need to have our eyes set on the right target. I told you my dad taught me how to shoot. And the very first rule about shooting or throwing a ball or anything else, and I don't, I don't throw a ball very well, but I'm a fair shot, is you hit what you look at. So you keep your eye on the target. If you're not paying attention to what you're actually trying to hit, you're going to get it wrong every time. Aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Okay? As a follower of Christ, it's helpful for you to have your eyes on the right target. It's helpful for you to understand that God actually has a, a, an idea about what your life is supposed to look like. So look with me at Psalm chapter 78. Psalm 78. And we're just going to read the first few verses here. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known And our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their generation, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they may not be like their fathers, stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So the first thing that we see here is that we need to be willing and purposeful about declaring professing and confessing the wonders of everything that God has done. Has God done work in your life? Absolutely he has. Regardless of whether or not you know him, regardless of whether or not you follow him faithfully, regardless of whether or not you understand it, 
God has done work in your life. He has been at work doing things, working for you. And the only evidence that you really have to do is to understand that right now your body is full of borrowed air. You didn't make that air. You had nothing to do with its creation. I mean, maybe you bought a snake plant so the air is purified, but you don't have anything whatsoever to do with the production of that air. You didn't create the molecules of oxygen. You didn't create the the body that knows how to use that oxygen. That's all borrowed grace. That's all things that God has given you. And the fact that God has sustained your life until this moment is evident that he's been at work in you. The fact that you're still here is evidence that God is at work in your life. So wherever you're at on the spectrum, whether it's just the fact that you recognize that you're alive and that's all you've got, or whether you know God personally and intimately, confess what it is that God has done in your life. And the closer you get to Him, the more you know Him, the more you should have opportunity and the more you should be aware of exactly how much He's done. There should be so much going on in your life, seeing the hand of God, seeing the mercy of God every day, just little things here and there, opportunities to know what God has done. Confess these things to your children. Frame every conversation in the context of, let me tell you what God showed me today. Now, you're going to draw from the natural world as you're out doing your job, but primarily, you're going to draw from Scripture and use the Scripture to frame your understanding of the natural world. You're going to use the Word of God to tell you how to understand what goes on. Because there's a whole lot of things that you're going to look at in the world that you're going to have the opportunity to get wrong in your interpretation if you try to do it in a world divorced of God. You see, what we're talking about here is worldview. The idea of a cohesive whole which says there is a system to the world in which we live. There is a system which puts all of this together into a perspective that is aligned with truth. If you're going to have a biblical worldview, the Bible is going to be the lens through which you look at the world. The Bible is going to be that which defines everything that you think and everything that you do. Now, to the world itself, that's going to make you seem narrow-minded. It's going to make you seem a little bit off. Some are going to call you stupid for believing that God actually created the world. And if you tell them that he created it in six days and it's not billions of years old, you, you need to have some facts in your pocket, and I promise you there's lots of them. Ultimately, you need to be willing to look at the Scripture and say what God has said is true and what I think I understand in the world around me has to be interpreted in light of the Scripture or I don't understand it right. Think about it like this. Suppose you went to a place in the world where technology didn't exist where people still lived a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. There are still a few tribes in, in, in some of the deeper jungles where that's still going on. And you took to them a magic tube. And you took this magic tube, and when you push a button on the magic tube, light comes out. Oh, amazing. If you left them that tube and went your way, 
all sorts of strange ideas would come up about the magic tube. But you see what actually makes it work is very simple to understand. It's very clearly in our purview. And we can explain it, but you have to explain it through the right context. Here's what we need to do. We need to understand that the things that we think we understand, a lot of times we're like those people with a magic tube. We're looking at it, we see what it does kind of, we think we understand sort of, but we're not really clear what makes it work. We need somebody who understands how it works to actually bring understanding to us. The problem is we're all a bunch of people running around with magic tubes. We don't understand anything. So we need God who created everything to tell us what's really going on. We have to be committed to the truth that God actually knows what he did. I don't, I don't need to ask somebody else how the world began. I can tell you very plainly. In the beginning, God said, let there be. And there was. Now, like I said, if somebody wants to sit down and have the science argument with me, I'm happy to do that. I promise you'll figure out real quick that your gun is unloaded. Because there's a whole lot of things that people take for granted that aren't true. Ultimately, what we need to recognize, and we need to be committed to this, is that God said, and what God said is real. Gentlemen, there is a window in your life and in the life of your child where you know everything. You are the go-to guy for all things, even what you don't know. Nobody knows more than my dad. Nobody's bigger than my dad. Nobody understands anything better than my dad. That's the truth of it. I would encourage you to use that window. And instead of teaching them how awesome you are, teach them how awesome God is. Because at some point, you're going to start getting stupid. Usually when they're about 12, 13 years old. You're going to get real dumb. But then the good news is, by the time they're 25, you're smart again. So you get through that window, and, and you'll be okay. But right now, if you have young children in the home, this is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your window. Teach them who God is based upon his word. Be clear about it. Be faithful about it. Be determined in it. Be particular about what you tell them about who God is and how he makes the world. Because he's always right. And sometimes we look at things and we go, ah, I'm not sure about that. We kind of back up a little bit because we don't really know. But the truth is, God knows and God can be trusted. And every single time we think we know what God did differently than what God says, and we jump on the science wagon and we jump on the train to do this, it comes around later that, boy, were we wrong. This needs to be established as the priority of your home so that your children might know well enough to teach it to their children. Remember, the idea here is to produce godly offspring. The idea here is to produce generations that themselves will know God so that they will grow up and have children and teach them to know God. This is to be a perpetual cycle by which we, as the people of God, profess and proclaim the things that God has said.
It's not enough that you know God. And it's not even enough that your children know God. The idea is that your children's 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 children know God. And on down the line. The idea is that the glory and the knowledge of God be spread throughout the whole world. That's the aim. That's the priority. So this needs to be established as the priority of your life so that not only will your children know who God is, but that they will trust him with their lives and with their souls for everything that is necessary in their lives. You have no other priority that matters at all when it's compared to this. Nothing. I don't care what it is. Compared to this truth, nothing else matters. You are responsible to teach your children the things of God. That's your job. We all have seen the memes. You had one job. (laughs) Here it is. This is your one job. This is your one thing. This is the most important thing in your world because it is absolutely the most important thing in your children's world. Now, part of that process is to be honest and plain with them about places where you get it wrong. You need to confess and re-aim where you have failed. So look again at verse 8 of this psalm. That they may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, and a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So the intent is that the generation to come will stand upon our shoulders and do better. The intent is not to bow down and worship and revere our fathers as much as it is that our fathers would provide a better platform for our children to stand on than was given to us. No matter how good it might have been, there's always room for improvement. There's always room to get it better. There's always room to do it truer. There's always room to be more faithful. And that means that sometimes you're going to have to go to your kids and say, look, I had this wrong. Own your own sin. Be clear and transparent within the bounds of maturity and propriety. There are some things that's probably not appropriate to have a conversation with your sons about when they're eight. Okay? But be clear about your sin. Own what you got wrong and do it in a way that they can understand and do it in a way that is honest enough to say there is grace and mercy in the God that I serve. Because he saved me in the midst of my own sin, and he saved me from it. He saved me for himself, but he didn't make me perfect yet. And I still mess up. And there is grace abundant in him for my failings even now. Look, here's what you need to know. Somewhere along the line, when your kids figure out that you're stupid, part of the problem is... You didn't tell them you were stupid to begin with. <laughs> you pretended to be something you weren't. And when that mask gets pulled away, they're a little disillusioned. Now there's rebellion in there. There's their own sin mixed in. There's all kinds of things that contribute to it. But I think that some of the harm can be alleviated if we're honest with our kids across the board. If we own our stuff and say, look, th- this, is, this is what's real. I messed up. I'm sorry. Maybe you messed up in how you dealt with them. Maybe you messed up in something that you were doing with somebody else and they witnessed it. Maybe they had no idea, but it's a good point for a lesson for them to say, look, let me tell you about a time that I was in a situation like you are right now. 
Let me tell you about my failing so that maybe you can avoid it yourself. Because those opportunities are going to arise. Those opportunities are going to be present in your life, and you need to be faithful to teach them to hope in God alone and to teach them by assessing and restructuring your own hope. Because here's what you need to take home from this. You are still a piece of work that God is fashioning. You're still learning too. And as you're learning, God is still dealing with you about your own things. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to model to your children the cycle of repentance. It's a beautiful thing to be able to model to your children what it looks like to recognize you messed up and to go to the person who you harmed and say, I have sinned, I am sorry, please forgive me. And go to God and say, God, against you alone I have sinned, please have mercy on me. That cycle of repentance, that cycle of owning your stuff and getting it right, making it right, and doing whatever is needful in order to set it right is the most powerful thing you can ever teach your children because they're going to need that all the days of their life. Nobody gets this right. And we all need to learn how to repent. It's why King David was a man after God's own heart in spite of the terrible things that he did. Because David was a man who knew how to repent. He was a man who knew he needs to go to God to get this set right. And he models that for us in magnificent glory. You need to make sure then that you are living a repentant life. Now this means that you need to be willing to testify of God in the midst of whatever is going on. Look at me at Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. Such a cool story in the Old Testament. Joshua is leading the people into the promised land. The conquest of Canaan is about to begin. And they have just crossed the River Jordan. Or they're about to. And uh, so Joshua chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross over before the ark of the Lord, your God, I'm sorry, cross over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, so that when your children ask in times to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial for the children of Israel forever. So Joshua gave to Israel the command that as they crossed the river Jordan, one man from each of the tribes was to take the largest stone he could carry, to put it on his shoulders and take the stones that came out of the middle of the river Jordan at flood stage a mile wide, running furiously, And they were to build an altar or a memorial pillar to the Lord on the other side of the river. And the point of the memorial was so that their children would ask them, Dad, what is that stone pile? What's that mean to you? And when they asked them, you could tell them the story of how God delivered Israel and how He cut off the waters of the Jordan and allowed them to cross on dry land. There's a personal reality of how God has done a work in your life that is your story alone. You need to establish markers to the faithful work of God in your life. 
you need to set up stones. I'm not talking literal stones. If that's your thing, go for it. I don't care. But you need to establish markers. You need to set up stones so that you have things that you can point to, that your children can come to and say, Dad, what does that mean? Why does that matter? Some of the stones are going to be the stories that you tell them. And I'm not talking just about the stories about how Grandpa ran into a tree. I'm talking about the stories about the work of God in your life. Because you need to be using these stones and these memorials as an opportunity to brag on God. You need to be telling people how faithfully God has done His work. Because He has been faithful. He has done great work in your life. He has done magnificent things before you. You need to rehearse the goodness of God continually to your children. You need to be telling them over and over and over how God has worked. Be consistent in your remembrances because your children need to know what these stones mean to you. They are the mark of your covenant with God. Beloved, hear me. This is the context of your story. It is the context of how God has worked in your life. And it is the particular expression of God's faithfulness to you that is going to be the first opening of the door into your children's lives. Because they know you. And they trust you. And they've seen you. They've seen you up and they've seen you down. And they see you as you are. And these stones are going to be the thing that opens the doors in their heart to begin to understand that God works in our lives. Do this. Establish memorials and rehearse them faithfully to your children. And then you need to understand that by doing this faithfully and by doing this well, your memorial stones become an opportunity to rehearse the goodness of God to the entire world. Look with me again. A little further down in chapter 4. Look down at verse 21. So, I'll just read it and then I'll point out the differences here. Verse 21, they have done what he told them to do. And then he spoke to the children of Israel saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us when we had crossed over. Verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So there's a few things I want to point out to you as a difference between Joshua's original command and his follow-up reminder. And the first one is, in the first instance, the children asked, Dad, what do these stones mean to you? In your home, there's a personal testimony. What does it mean to you? But in the second pass, they're going to come and they're going to say, what do they mean? There's a broader context. There's a bigger expression. There's the opportunity to say, okay, I understand what it means to you, but I need you to help me put it together in the larger puzzle. I need you to help me put the pieces in so that I begin to understand what's going on out there as well. And as you do that in their lives, part of the testimony is that God is doing a work in your life so that you might declare the greatness of God, not only to your children, but unto the world who is watching. Be mindful of this. 
Be mindful of the fact that the purpose of God's working in your life is the proclamation of His glory, not only to you and to your children, but to the world, and beyond that, according to Ephesians chapter 3, to the watching powers in the heavenly places. You see, the church, as God works in our lives, we become the boast of God. We become that which God Himself brags on. And here's the truth. You are not allowed to blink or to shrink back in the face of opposition because there will be people in the world who push back. There will be people in the world who are very content to say, no, 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 I'm sorry. Your God's imaginary. Your understanding is wrong. Your science is completely broken. And you're absolutely a fool. And everything you say is a lie. And that's just the nice ones. (laughs) You need to understand this. You need to speak the truth. And you need to do it knowing that God's glory is your task. Hebrews 10.38 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. See, God's not giving us an out. He doesn't give us permission. Oh, Lord, they don't like this message. I'm going to be quiet about it now. The fact that sin is sin is not popular, so I'm not going to tell anybody that their life is sin because I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be canceled. I like being able to get on Facebook. Not really. <laughs> but I'm scared that if I, if I do this, then I'm going to be canceled and, and all of my comforts and all of my, my popularity and, and my, my, ten, my ten followers, everybody's going to hate me and I'm not going to have anything left. Well... That's your choice, and you can do that. But you risk the displeasure of God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You can either be judged by God or judged by the world. You can't please them both. For me, I'd rather be hated by the world and loved by God than loved by the world and hated by God. Because it really is an either-or. There's no compromise on the truth. And God doesn't change his mind on the things that he has said. You are the very declaration of God himself. Look at me at Ephesians 3. I've mentioned it, but let's read it. It's important that you understand I'm not making this stuff up. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 9. We've read it before. Feels like we read it a lot. (laughs) To make everyone see what is the fellowship of the mystery which has from the beginning of the ages been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Hmm. You mean that when I'm living out my life and teaching my children, God is watching carefully and intently, and He is pointing out my successes and and the things that I'm doing that are faithful to Him to a watching host of angels and demons, the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places? That's exactly what it means. You are the boasting of God. It is important for us to understand the context of this. And to know that you and your home and your family and your story become the path of the proclamation of the glory of God. 
to your friends, to your larger community, to the world at large, but in the heavenly places as well. You are the path to the glory of God. We become the boasting of the Lord over all of the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places who are trying to accuse God of being faithless and wrong and impotent. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 that God is vindicating himself through the justification of his people. Because in the former times, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. See, when God did not punish Adam and Eve as they rightly deserved, when God didn't eradicate them off the face of the earth, he opened the charge of unfairness to himself. What happened when the demons, when the, when the angels who were in heaven rebelled against God and tried to take over heaven? They were cast out. And they were cast out without any hope of redemption. They were cast down from the presence of God. So when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and did essentially the same thing, tried to ascend into the place that belonged only to God, instead of throwing them out, God provided a covering. God provided a lamb. He provided a way. And he covered over their sin, already prophesying Christ would come already looking forward to what he had intended all along to do on the cross. But from the time of Adam until the time of Jesus, all of hell and all of heaven itself was able to say against God, you are unjust. You have not dealt fairly. You have not dealt equitably. You have not been righteous, God. So Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that God was vindicating his own righteousness in the death of Christ. Because all along, the sins of the people who belong to God have been covered in the blood of Christ, though it looked like the blood of lambs. God was pointing forward to the cross, even as now he points back to the cross. Which is why the scripture tells us that there is only one path to get to know God. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, beloved, you do not have to listen far to turn on the television and hear somebody who tell you he's a Christian preacher go, well, I don't want to say that anybody who believes in other religions is going to hell. Turn it off. Turn it off. He's a liar. He doesn't know God, and he's teaching people only things that will damn them. Turn it off. Because Jesus himself is not ambiguous about it. Jesus himself was not unclear. So either Jesus was wrong Or Captain Smiley is wrong. You pick. As far as I know, for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Jesus is God, so he's never wrong. It is his blood. It is his death. It is his cross. He alone has purchased us the peace. And there is no other path to gain that peace. And that's a message you need to teach your children. But it's also a message that you need to be faithfully proclaiming to a watching world. We need to be unapologetic about it. We need to be absolutely clear that God has been plain about the requirements. And the requirements are not that you go to church and live a good life and do good things. That's never going to be enough. By the righteous works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, Paul tells us in Galatians. Now, I'm not saying don't go to church. I love it when you're here. But I am saying 
that going to church isn't going to save you. Only Jesus Christ. Only His death. Only His death being applied to your sins will save you. The good news is, is that if His death is applied to your sins, you are saved. Period. And there's nothing you can do to undo it because there's nothing that you do to do it. You have no power over it. You have no power to change it. You have no power to implement it. You have no power to alter it in any fashion. And this brings God the glory. This is His purpose in establishing your life and in establishing your your salvation in truth. He has redeemed you for His own glory. We're in Ephesians. Turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 11, it says this, In Him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. That we who trusted in Christ should be to the praise of what? His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, again to the praise of what? His glory. Beloved, when God saved you, He saved you for His glory. Yes, it brings good things into your life, and yes, God loves you, but the good things that it brings into your life and the love of God that is displayed in that in, in truth, they're incidentals. If it were a bad thing, we'd call it collateral damage. But it's, it's a good thing, so we'll call it collateral blessings. <laughs> we, we get good things because God is determined to glorify Himself. And here's why. Because He is the only one in all of creation, anywhere, who deserves the glory. And ultimately, isn't that the problem that we're facing in the world right now? June is what? It's Pride Month. People are so proud, like they deserve glory for their sin. But just take that aside. Just just set the sin aspect of it aside. Should we ever be exalting human pride? No. It's nothing but hubris. It's nothing but damaging. It destroys everything it touches. Beloved, the only path to God is through humility. It's through coming to Him and saying, God, I'm a sinner, I'm ruined. Please have mercy on me. Mercy is in itself a declaration of our undeserving nature. When we ask for mercy, we're saying, God, I don't deserve what I'm asking for. I have no power. I have no right. I have nothing which would would offer me to you in any way. All I know is that you said you would, so I'm going to trust you and I'm going to ask you, God, keep your word. It's a very humbling position to be in. It's the furthest thing in the world from the concept of pride. And beloved, we need to teach this to our children that God will receive the glory. The job of the living, according to Isaiah 38, 19, is to praise the Lord. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. And the Father shall make known your truth to the children. It is your job, as long as you are on this planet sucking wind, to praise God. 
It is your job as long as there is life in your body to give praise to him. It is the job of the living to praise God. And as I mentioned before, just the fact that you are alive is something you should praise him about. You should give thanks to him that there is breath in your body, that there is strength in your limbs, however much there may be. You should give thanks to God that he has granted you life, that you might know him. This is something worth praising him about. Declare this to your children. They need to hear it often. Do not cloud the issue with your own opinions, but center the proclamation of God's glory in the truth of who he is as he is revealed in the Bible. This is our reason for living, and it is our purpose to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The fact that we're alive is all the motivation we should need. Now, there's a principle in how we teach. Look at me in Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28. And we're going to start reading at verse 8. All the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breast? For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. That, that's me. <laughs> to whom he has said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But still the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, upon precept, line upon line, Line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and be snared and be caught. We don't teach them everything, partly because we don't know everything. (laughs) But we don't even teach them everything we know. We teach them precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. This, this builds for us uh, an atmosphere of instruction. It builds for us um, a theater, if you will, in which we might approach the truth of God from a thousand different angles, each one tying in to other things that we have taught, each one tying in with other principles, each one tying in with other precepts. Precepts are the smallest little pieces of the law. They are the smallest little pieces of instruction. And we need to build what we give people, slowly, carefully. We need to instruct them in the things of God. So as you have little children that you're teaching, you need to do it carefully and systematically, but you need to do it in bite-sized pieces. Little kids take little bites. Give them little bites. Teach them a little bit. When we don't teach them, little by little, part by part, they will reject it wholesale. If, if you don't bother to teach them anything, 
until the big bad wolf comes knocking at the door and then you try to dump the whole load on them because all of a sudden, I'm alarmed, I'm alarmed, I'm scared, my kids are going to hell and it's all my fault. All you're going to do is run them off. So wherever you find yourself, throttle back your alarm, throttle back your fear, throttle back your worry, and build in them little by little, piece by piece. Stop their madness if they're doing something dangerous, but build in them piece by piece. You cannot go back and and redo the work you haven't done for 10 or 15 years. Can't do it all in an afternoon. So, So do it little by little. Do it piece by piece. Build carefully what they need to know. And grant room for God to work. The scripture tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Psalm 19.7. So when you teach them the law, the law will do its job. Now, understanding salvation as it's presented in scripture, we know that every single person who's going to be saved has been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. We know that every single one of us who God has chosen will be saved. So nobody's going to die before their time, and you don't need to worry that, oh my goodness, I didn't teach them the right things in the right time, and therefore they didn't get saved and they were going to. That's not the issue. The issue is you are where you are, right now is where you are, and all you can do is move from this point forward. You cannot go back and fix the past. You might repent of it, and you should, and you should confess your sin in it, but you cannot redo what you've already done or do what you didn't do then all at once. So trust in the grace of God, trust in the process of God, know that God will do what God intends to do, and teach them so that they can take it in. God's truth will be declared. And either you will teach them precept by precept, or God will raise up stones to teach them precept by precept. I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of a rock doing my job. It doesn't seem right. So teach your children. Teach them the truth of God to the best of your ability, as faithfully as you know how. Understand that any other rest they seek to pursue is not going to provide them peace or contentment or rest or joy or anything else. You see, the whole lie that the culture is teaching right now is that we should let people do whatever they want because they're looking for their peace. They're looking for their contentment. They're looking for their wholeness. They want to be their authentic selves. It's all chaos and it's all madness. And the only thing it leads to is destruction. Because the only peace that can be found is in Christ Jesus. Oh, things might look peaceful for a little while. And they might look happy for the moment. But understand that in the end, there is a dark side to sin that will always get its due. And when people run from God, thinking they'll find peace, the only thing they find in the end is their own destruction. You may not believe that, but I assure you on the authority of God's word, it's absolutely true. Speak truth to them, and speak truth to them with authentic heart engaged. Because you should understand that the only peace your children or your friends or your neighbors will ever have is when they have peace with God.
And the only way to have peace with God is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ being applied to their sin. When we meet rebellious hearts with the truth of God's word, we keep teaching the truth. You speak the truth, somebody pushes back with their rebellious heart, and they say, no, you're wrong. Just come back to the word of God. God says, don't get involved in the opinion battles. Don't think of quippy things to say, I go wrong in this all the time. It's not good policy. Don't think of quick, clever things that are going to crush their human arguments. You might win the argument, but you're not going to change them at all by doing that. They're just going to go find somebody else and get more ammunition and come back. Instead, calmly go to the Word of God. Because God's Word is truth. And and the reality of the Scripture tells us that when we speak God's Word to people, The Spirit of God dwells on the Word and dwells on our words and overshadows the engagement so that it shuts their mouths and God presses His truth into their hearts. Beloved, what has to happen is the transformation of the dead into the living. And you can't do that, and they can't do that. The only one who can make the dead live is God. Our job is to facilitate the introduction, not because God needs us to, but because he commands us to. And we facilitate the introduction by preaching faithfully the word of God. We speak the truth of who God says he is, who God says they are, what God says about the shape of the world in which we live. And we proclaim the truth, trusting that the truth of God will do its job. It will make the dead live. And every single person in this room who is spiritually alive right now is testimony to that truth. Because I defy any of you to give me any explanation for the change in you other than, I don't know, I just wanted. That's evidence of a new heart. There's no logical argument that can convince us. God changed our heart, and suddenly the truth was plain. That's who we are. It's His glory. It's His work. It's His transformation. This is the priority of real life. Be willing to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of the kingdom of God. Hear me. That might mean a temporary pause in a relationship. Understand me? It might mean that somebody to whom you're speaking truth, they get mad, And they walk away. Be willing to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. It might mean that the culture comes against you with intensity. It might mean that you get canceled. It might mean that you're hated. It might mean that you lose jobs. It might mean you lose friends. It might mean somebody threatens your life. It could mean any of those things. It could mean all of those things. Be willing to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of the knowledge of Christ. Listen to how Paul expresses it in Philippians chapter 3. Turn with me there if you would. Philippians 3, starting at verse 7. Paul says this, What things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count also all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In the end, we might lose anything we have and still be okay. Can't stand the thought of losing our children and seeing them destroyed. And while it's true that they're in the hand of God and he'll do what he'll do, it's also true that I want to know if something were to happen like that, that I did everything in my power to the best of my ability. I I couldn't stand the thought of knowing that my child died and not knowing that they ever knew Christ and then knowing truthfully that I didn't do everything I should have done. I think that would destroy me. So faithfully, with everything you have in you, do what God tells you to do. Not because you're going to change anything, but because God has commanded you to. Do not permit your worldly passions to lead to the destruction of your children. Lay hold of the promises that God has given on behalf of your children. Teach them, and teach them in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And that means that your job as a father is to do exactly what God has said and then to lean into Him, to trust Him. Not to stand on your own strength, not to stand on your own wisdom, but to lean into Him. Because as you raise your children, you want to know that they know his character. So are there going to be times where you're afraid? Absolutely. Are there going to be times where you're worried? Without doubt. Are there going to be times where you feel like I've done everything I'm supposed to do and it doesn't look very good right now? Yep. Those times are going to be there. What do you do with that? Well, you have two options. You lean in. Or you draw back. We already saw that God has no pleasure in the ones who draws back. So instead we lean in. Listen to how Peter describes it in Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them in verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now that word for means because of, not in order to. Right? You understand that? You go into the, into the post office and you look at the wanted signs and it says wanted for murder, are they advertising to hire? No. They're saying, I want this, this person is wanted because he has committed a murder. Right? So that's how we use the word for all the time. Don't get confused about this. Be baptized for, because of, the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39 says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Beloved, that's a promise you can take to the bank. If your children are called and being called of God, then the promises of God are for them, and you can do what God has told you to do with confidence, knowing that in the due time and in the fullness of time, God will make good on his promise. But your job doesn't change whether you see results right now or not. Your job is to be faithful to do what God has called you to do. Now in just a few moments, we're going to have a baby dedication and we're going to give some families the opportunity to confess their intention to do this well.
Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace, and we ask, God, that you give to us faithful hearts. Make us obedient, and teach us what it looks like to live this out. God, I pray for every family in this room. I pray, Lord, for every family that hears me through whatever medium, Lord, through the radio or the internet or whatever. And I pray, God, that as we are faithfully proclaiming the truth, that you, God, will receive your own glory. God, we ask this so that Christ, who died in our place, would receive the full reward of his suffering and every ounce of glory that he deserves. We ask, God, that you would let us be a part of that magnificence and that you would let our children be a part of that magnificence and our grandchildren and our grandchildren's grandchildren. God, unto the 10th and 20th generation, continue to make yourself known to our families that Christ would receive all the glory that he deserves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.